Dino, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Hi, Stephen. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Good stuff. It's been very American-centric tonight, so it's nice nice to hear a friendly friendly accent. Good. Um, <laughs> maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, Lee Day Solicitors and what you do there. Yeah, so I'm a, a partner and a solicitor at Lee Day, uh, specialising in representing abuse survivors. We only act on behalf of uh, claimants uh, for numerous different issues, um, but we're one of the leading human rights law firms in the country. Uh, and myself, you know, I specialise in representing child abuse survivors uh, predominantly, and especially women's sports. All right, there's a lot, lot to unpack there then, and I, I appreciate as well. You spend a lot of time with people who have, you know, been abused at the hands of, the, you know, the Catholic Church and things like that. And I mean, I mean that that issue obviously was going on a long time before it was exposed. I assume it's probably continued in various forms since. And I, I'm just wondering how how would you best describe this this issue to just to give people an idea of the scale of it? Because I think it feels like it's become so large in that sense that a lot of people are actually numb to it in terms of the, the you know the scale uh, so i mean how how widespread was this issue with the, the catholic church and how, how widespread is it rather yeah i think when most people consider something like child abuse they do think of the catholic church or they think of something as being historical and this is the only crime we use that word historical child abuse we don't see historical murder historical burglary historical theft it's only child abuse because obviously it happened in the past. It's happened in a different area, a different time. It doesn't happen now. And you're right, Stephen, it does. And the simple truth is, is that wherever there's an adult in a position of trust over a child, there's a risk of abuse. And now that may be the Catholic Church. It may be other religions. It may be private schools, state schools, boarding schools, scout association, military cadets, any sport you can think of. It may be in the family home. It may be by strangers maybe by uh, politicians, police officers, doctors, nurses, anywhere where you think a child is in contact with a, an adult, sadly, they're at risk of abuse. We do see abuse happening, and that continues to the current day, sadly. Yeah, and, and in what ways do you provide support for, I mean, is it is it primarily uh, primarily focused around the victims or survivors, however you, you, you prefer to term it? Are, are you dealing with sort of institutions as well to help make them more aware of how they can be attuned to it yeah so we we represent abuse survivors uh, in legal actions often against institutions now the reason for that is that they've been through something which is horrendous and clearly wrong and that needs to be addressed they need to get some form of accountability closure justice whatever word you want to use but they deserve answers um, we also do a lot of campaigning with our clients, we do a lot of media work, try to expose this issue. And what we're really keen to do is to raise awareness, expose the issue, signpost where we can. But so much is really important. We need to break the cycle. Um, we can't just keep on hearing the same, you know, in quotation marks, scandals, you know, whether it's abuse in football or abuse in the Catholic Church. We need to break the cycle. Otherwise, the next generation will be at the same risk of abuse as our generation is or were. Um, so that's what we're really keen to do, tighten the laws, really make sure that people are punished for committing these crimes, because otherwise nothing changes. Same story, different day. It's just not good enough. 
I totally agree. I mean, you made a great point when we started talking then about the, you know, referencing, you know, the atrocities carried out by members of the Catholic Church, which is historic. And I suppose in in a way as well, I mean, how difficult is it to get justice for people where the crimes perpetrated against them were some time ago? I mean, we just had that, you know, Jimmy Savile docudrama starring Steve Coogan there. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things about that whole I was going to say scandal there, but you you warned off that word, so that I use atrocity. That, that whole that whole issue was that he never faced justice while he was alive, and a lot of these people, you know, it took him a long time to come forward and speak up because of the shame, the stigma, and things like that. And how how much more difficult is it to get justice for these people if if there's a you know a huge passage of time? Yeah, just with the scandal point, by the way, the reason why it's so important is that journalists want to get exposure for these issues and it's right to do so but the the exposure is just one part the scandal is just that and actually you're not looking at the impact on someone's life you're not looking at the considerations of how it happened why did it happen how did it happen for so long so that's the reason why i pick up on the word scandal in relation to the time point you mentioned it is harder but it's it's an inherent part of the crime in that compared to most crimes people report relatively soon after so if someone stabbed you today, I would hope, Stephen, that number one, you tell a doctor, get treatment, and hopefully tell the police. Tell your friends, tell family. If someone stole your TV, I hope you wouldn't allow them to nick other stuff from your house. Again, tell the police. It's such a unique crime, and it does make it more difficult. But the simple truth is that we know, sadly, from abusers, even though they make, them, make you feel that you're the only one they abuse, we know they abuse others. And whether that's teachers or savon, this is the brutal nature of that crime. It's not one individual. It's not one day. They will abuse numerous individuals over a significant period of time, and yet somehow no one's aware. No one's conscious of that child changing personality, their lives being affected, and as a result, the abuse and the abusers can continue. Um, it is hard, but it's possible, and, and this is something we really strive to do for all of our clients, but it, it's not possible for everyone. Of course, it's a really difficult um, area to kind of um, explore and to try to help people with. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could just uh, help us explore the psychology of this a little bit in terms of, um, you know, a, a young adult or a, a, an adolescent or somebody underage who's been abused by somebody. Obviously, there's a power dynamic element there. And it, you'll often hear uh, people say they, they felt like they were in they were doing something wrong the victim were doing something wrong there's a lot of shame that comes with it a lot of stigma what what is the psychology there that kind of explains this kind of thing where somebody could be experiencing some of the most horrific forms of abuse but they internalize it as perhaps their their fault yeah i think that when we consider most abuse happens let's say between 10 and 15 those five years are the key the most important five years of your life they are when you change from a child to a teenager to a young adult, it's when you define who you are as a person, what kind of friends you like, what music you're interested in, what your diet is, what your sexuality is, um, your career, your GCSEs, how well do you do? Will you go to university or not? Those five years are more important than 30 to 35 years old, 20 to 25. You choose any of the five years. So for someone like this to happen, often it's your first sexual experience. It's your first feelings of emotion to someone else. It's very confusing at that period of time. And for someone to have access to money or a car or to take interest in you, it is really confusing. 
and to have feelings, physical feelings sometimes, it's very confusing. But to also feel trapped, who do you speak to? Who do you reach out to? Can you tell your parents who may be very religious? Can you tell teachers who may blame you? Again, victim blaming applies as much to child abuse as it does to women and other adults who suffer abuse. Why did you go back? Did you enjoy it? Why didn't you fight him off? Are you homosexual? These mm. are the things which people are asked and people are worried about. And that just continues and continues and continues. Sometimes survivors are being told, don't tell anyone. No one will believe you. If you do, I'll kill myself. If you do, your parents will hate you. All of these things feed into this psychology whereby it's my word against someone else's. And remember, they're not equal, like you mentioned. It's someone in a position of power, trust and authority. It's someone who's been able to manipulate not just a child, but the local community in that everyone believes in them. They're not some weirdo in a park. They are your school teacher. It's your parents' priest. It's the really popular football coach. They're not weirdos. They're normal people. They're not monsters. They're operating in normal society. So how can you go against them? Who would believe you as a child? And do you want to have to deal with the fallout, the potential fallout, and the potential impact on your life and your career and your parents? And you're 10 to 15 years old. It is so much on those very small shoulders. And still in 2023, that pressure is still on you. There is no mandatory report in this country. There's no legal duty and people in the positions of trust report on these issues. It's still left on you as a child to deal with that, deal with the repercussions. And often it's just too much. Lots of survivors will never report. And those who do, on average, report about 30 years after the crime. So when they're roughly 40. It's, and going back to your example, if you had been stabbed, Stephen, if you didn't get treated for 30 years, your injuries would be so much worse. You may not go out as much. Other parts of your body may be affected. And that's what happens to survivors. And then they self-medicate. And then this permeates this cycle of pain, drink, drugs, self-harm, suicide attempts. And then it's you still need to disclose and disclose the most private and painful things in your entire life. And once it's out, it's out. You can't put it back inside the box. So that is some of the psychology, why abuse survivors find it so difficult to talk. And that's why it's often so difficult to get justice for them. Um, but we need to do as much as we can. And that's why I'm so grateful for you uh, and Sean for being able to you know, allow me to speak and to raise these issues. It's so important to break the taboo of abuse. That's it's entirely um, our pleasure. It seems like a, a wrong expression to use for such serious, serious uh, injustices. But I mean, you're you're obviously the one doing the important work here, and that that was a really eloquent and comprehensive answer to my question. So thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion as well on where we are in terms of society or the climate, because it feels like there has been a lot of consciousness raising, awareness raising of. Uh, child abusers, people like that. It seems like the press went mental on the issue for the longest time, where they were, they were everywhere in bushes. Everybody was one. You know, I think pediatricians' houses were being attacked and, and things like that because people couldn't read properly. And it, so it felt a, a little bit like maybe the, the society had made progress on this in terms of it would, it would have been harder to keep hush. But then you kind of throw in the the advent of the internet into its social media, online gaming, other other forms where, you know, abusers don't even need to leave the house to sort of groom and get the hooks into, you know, potentially vulnerable people. I'm just wondering how how, how are you dealing with that aspect of it? How much has it changed the climate, this, this you know, this globally interconnected social network that we're all we all have in our pockets yeah. now yeah well just dealing with the first aspect you know teachers doctors and the like 
I think the media did raise awareness, but one thing which is really important is that abusers don't operate in silos or, you know, little bubbles. The system allows abuse to permeate and to take place. And what I mean by that is that we're not, you know, enabling abusers, but often we're, we're failing to pick up on the signs and failing to stop abuse. You have an abusive teacher, we'll let you go. You have an abusive priest, let's move him to another diocese. That is enabling abuse to continue. And we do need to look at the systematic failings which take place. In relation to your question, again, I'm not a politician or definitely not yet, so I'll answer your question directly. In relation to online abuse, you are right. It's a totally different beast because it could be anyone, anywhere, and not just children in Britain, but children across the globe who could be being abused. But you are getting the access to those images and videos and they may never know, we may never know who those children are. And that is terrifying. And I think that, you know, the internet is an amazing thing. Social media is fantastic. But in the wrong hands, it can do horrendous things. And what we are seeing is a huge issue where lots of men, most abusers are men. Uh, the vast majority, you know, 98, 99% of, of sexual abusers are men who are viewing these images the key thing is how do we a stop them getting access and the second thing is b when they when we do find out do we punish them and what we do see with total respect to the criminal justice system far too many of these people get suspended sentences because we didn't actually harm a child you didn't touch a child but a child is being harmed for you to get that sexual gratification surely the sentencing should be stricter now, sometimes it comes down to finances. Sometimes it comes down to capacity. Our prisons are full, as reported last week. Now, that may be uh, an excuse, but it's not a good enough reason. And I think that if we know there's an issue, which there is, online abuse and viewing of these images, it is an issue. We need to do more. We need to start really um working with and against potentially social media platforms to tighten the loopholes no one should want people viewing child abuse imagery online it, it should be black and white there are no ifs or buts there's no arguments about free speech or anything else it's wrong block it and when those men are found to view those images we do need to punish them we do need to set down a clear deterrent and to show this is wrong because otherwise you get a slap on the wrist which is as a lawyer, you should be careful using those phrases, but, you know, a suspended sentence isn't a true punishment for your crimes, in my personal view. And for lots of my clients who have suffered this, it doesn't do justice to what's happened and the kind of infiltration of their personal lives. So we should be doing a lot more. I think the law could be do, being a lot harder on those of you child abuse images, um, and they should be doing that sooner rather than later because we have got a real problem with it. I imagine you would have a lot of public support for that motion if, if you were a politician, for sure. I mean, just looking in, into other areas that you focus on as well, like you mentioned pre, uh, earlier in the conversation, sport as well is a big focus. What kind of things do you focus on there and what kind of issues do you, do you come across? So in sport, obviously, we've had uh, abuse in football exposed in 2016, 2017. We've had abuse in gymnastics and swimming. But again, we rely often for scandals to take place in the media to enable people to come forward. So when people came forward for abuse in football in 2016 onwards, it took a number of years for people to come forward for abuse in swimming and gymnastics. And, you know, we did a um, work with uh, Amazon Prime for abuse in tennis, for example. It takes time. But what is really interesting from a psychology perspective, most people consider an abuse survivor to be someone 
who um, is not Sunuda's sport. Sunuda's sport is popular and fit and physically strong. They're not someone who's, you know, termed when people consider who an abuse survivor is. They have a very much of a stereotype of someone who's a victim and a survivor. And actually, anyone can suffer abuse. So abuse in sport is a real issue. Each sport has different standards of care and levels of care as well. Um, but there's been about, well, there's been a significant number of sports which have been affected, to be frank. And it's really hard to find a sport which hasn't been affected by sexual abuse of children. Well, I mean, just to walk you through a political minefield here, which I apologise for in advance. I mean, you mentioned something which is, you know, factually true earlier that the the overwhelming perpetrators of these crimes on average are men. That's that's indisputable. And, and because of that, there are various safeguarding processes that are, are quite important. And one of amongst those, I would imagine, would be single sex spaces. Now, there's a big debate raging certainly in the uk at the moment uh people who were i suppose would be designated trans exclusionary radical feminist they would describe themselves as maybe gender critical would say single sex spaces are absolutely paramount to reduce the chances of abuse like this certain amount of abuse happening i'm just wondering is that something you give a thought to with these new rules regarding perhaps self-identification and, and biological men having access to sort of female changing rooms and things like that is that something that flags up as a potential issue for what you do i think where is an adult around children um or females there's a risk i think that's definitely true the one thing which is really important is to consider um uh, the level of risk and proportionality. So the question is, if you have 100 people, how many of them identify as trans um, and where is the risk? And I think that, again, with total respect to the media, often the focus is on the risk or perceived risk of transsexuals. It's been lots of transsexuals obviously are not sex offenders and not risks to children, to be frank. And that's what the research dictates and data and so on. The numbers of men who can sexually abuse and do sexually abuse children is so much higher. And I think that what we need to consider is turn it on its head rather than looking at, um, you, you know, the, the key thing is protection of children and making sure they're safe. The greatest risk to children, based on everything which we know, are men in positions of trust. That's the simple truth, that that is the biggest risk. And the system which enables someone who's a male, or trans or whatever else, that system allows them all to permeate that and to commit those, commit the abuse and to fall through those loopholes. Those loopholes need to be tightened for everyone. And that's not me dodging your question or dodging this issue. I just think that um, that is where the focus is. Again, the media can divert your attention to specific issues. But the greatest number of men in prison right now for child sexual abuse are men, are males. That is the simple truth. That's the biggest risk. So that's where my, most of my focus is. And now that's not saying that there's not areas. I'm not saying that women are not abusers. They are. There are a number of women who are in prison for child sexual abuse as well. But the most focus, and due to limited resources and time and ability to get people's attention and to get the media and get journalists' attention, we have to focus on the biggest risk. And that is, sadly men in the positions of trust okay fair enough well yeah. i mean um 
in terms of um, these roles, so we, if we're talking about like scouts, teachers, community leaders, people who would primarily focus on helping children, perhaps vulnerable children, these are some of the greatest people on the planet for some of the work they do. You know, and their their intentions are pure, and yeah. they really, you know, they they're full of empathy and they really want to help and they wouldn't harm a child. Unfortunately, another tragic aspect of this whole thing really is that a lot of them jobs do actually appeal to people who are sex offenders because. To put it really crassly, the, the lions want to be where the lambs are, I suppose. And do we have an issue there then of like, you know, these far too many scandals with the priesthood. So people are now, you know, weary of all priests. This one scout leader too many has is, is, is been guilty of something. So the scouts is now in disrepute. I mean, how, how do we how do we find that proportional balance between protecting people and not wanting people to think that every teacher is a, a threat, for instance? Yeah, no. So to, so you're right. Not everyone is, and there's some amazing. Most teachers are amazing. You know, the thing they can do can, can, constantly, and the improvement and difference can make people's lives is fantastic. Same as a really good football coach, scout leader, they can really add to that child who then adds to society. So it's really good for the societal benefits. So I totally agree with that. The issue which I have, however, is that it's not the abusers. It's again, it's looking at the system. If the reason why the Catholic Church is targeted so much is that they have been known to move priests around who have had allegations of abuse against them. It's the cover-up which kills you constantly, whatever it is. Whether it's murder, you kill someone, but then you cover it up by whatever means. It's that cover-up which is the thing which really aggravates people and really um, makes things worse. And the same is with teachers and um, football coaches and priests and the like. It's when you mentioned the good priests, why did the good priests allow the bad priests to move somewhere else and we no longer have probably abuse someone else? Why in Nazi Germany did good Germans turn a blind eye? It was for fear of repercussions, you know, fear of death, etc. I don't think you can say to me a Catholic priest in Newcastle is at fear of death for not reporting on a priest. A teacher in Swindon can't be at fear of death either. So what's stopping them? And that's the reason why it's really important, again, to that psychology. What is stopping you from acting on those accusations, those allegations, those concerns? Because when good people do bad things, we're screwed. The safeguarding, the safeguarding of children is screwed. We, we don't have any chance because instead, we go back to that first thing you said. It's down to a child to report all over again. And I'm saying to you, it's too much. So if the good people, the people which we both know, those teachers and priests and coaches, can do the right thing, they will remain good people in my eyes. Until that point, there are doubts. And this is why the Catholic Church is such a big problem, because it's been such a big issue in this country, in America, in Argentina, for moving dodgy priests around, as they're termed. They're child abusers. You know, and you know, I know you need to forgive and forget and we should not be vengeful, and all of that, I know that, but surely where a child's suffering abuse and you're putting them at risk of suffering further abuse, you're doing the wrong thing, and that will taint you forever because the system is flawed, and that's the reason why certain organisations have problems because they fail children. Yeah, and I, I kind of appreciate this, a few bad apples <clears throat> kind of perspective when it comes to sort of teachers, scouts, yes. things like that, but just to lead you through another minefield, Again, do you know, in terms of the Catholic Church, if I'm to put on my, you know, 2008 Richard Dawkins, the God delusion phase, I, I would potentially point at the Catholic Church and say, well, 
some of the doctrines and the culture there around an attitude towards sex and the threat of hellfire and prohibition against masturbation and celibacy and all these kind of, you know, abnormal, um, strict dogmas, etc., is, is a potential breeding ground for this kind of sexual abnormal behavior and, and preying on the young and, and things like that. And I'm just wondering if you've given how widespread it is in the Catholic Church, is there a causal link we can we can make between the dogmas of the church and, and some of the behavior we're witnessing from their, their clergy? Um, so it's a really good question. So there are uh, three things to pick up on. So one, no sex before marriage as a Catholic, okay? Yeah. So you're a child and a priest has, had, has raped you, has had sexual intercourse with you, can you tell anyone? I've had this issue with Catholics and Mormons and other religions because you're no longer pure. It's just be a virgin until you're married. It's a real issue, even though this has been done to you. It's not sex. You've been raped. But it, they will still say, well, it's still sexual intercourse. That stops survivors talking. The second is the power of a confession. A priest can go into a confessional and say something. They're not under a duty to report it. Um, and often they don't, they never do, because the whole point is when you go to a confessional, whatever you say stays in there. So again, the priest can feel relieved. Oh, I finally told someone, yes, I raped a child, I did this, but I know it's not going to go anywhere. Do 10 Hail Marys and crack on with your day. <laughs> um, that's an issue. Those are two issues, which again, silence abuse. The third thing is, there's a study done in the Vatican State, so obviously the Vatican State's in the middle of Rome, it's a country, but it's, it's you know, well, it is a country, technically. But they, they looked into the computer history of priests and they did find a high level of pornography. Now, um, as priests, a Catholic priest, you're not supposed to have sex, you're not supposed to masturbate or anything else. So you're not viewing pornography for the artistic value with totally, <laughs> total respect, you'd be totally crude. So if they knew this, what did they do about it? They just turned a blind eye. Now, going back to your original question, does this extreme nature make is it just so unnatural that they will develop urges and they will go down this path or do they really have these urges and say well look i have a bad urge i know i should not commit child abuse therefore i'll become a priest i'll be celibate for the rest of my life it doesn't work it, it, there's a number of priests again in italy who um will have sex with widows um uh, it, it's, it was a news issue about two years ago was a high prevalence again catholic priests cannot have sex they have sex with widows because obviously their husbands have just died it's in essence a perfect crime because who's gonna you know a widow's not gonna say by the way my husband's dead i've just had sex with my priest he's only been buried six months or three months wherever it is it, it, it's an issue uh, and i think the point of celibacy it, it is an inherent question if religion is about god and purity and about doing good and being a good person, which most religions are, to be frank. You know, if you if you follow these rules, you'll be a good person. You'll be pure. That's the most essence of religion. It should be. Why does sex have to come into it for? Why does the Catholic religion? Why are they so obsessed by sex and being celibate, no sex before marriage, um, you know, no abortion, sex should only be to pro procreate, and all these other things? Why does that make you a good person or a bad person? You know, I understand. Don't murder someone. I understand. Don't cheat on someone. I understand those. Obviously, those are bad things. And I get that. But they do have an obsession about sex, potentially, um, which is abnormal. And as a result, if you're brought up in a Catholic family, you're abused by a Catholic priest, you're an altar server, your views on sex can become extremely um, uh, deviated or normal. 
And if you do suffer abuse, then it's so much harder to disclose uh, and to talk about it. I mean, that's a, another really thoughtful answer, Dino. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering, do they have strong enough checks in place in, in schools and sporting bodies for maybe, you know, uh, catching out coaches that have been in trouble in different areas of the country before? Is there a good system in place for that? So DBS checks, the kind of criminal record checks, only catch you, obviously, if you've been reported and, and acted on. And I think that there are lots of other things where sporting bodies could act. So you may not face criminal repercussions, but you may be banned from a sport, football, for example, or tennis. Um, but it's not known about. And I think it's really important if you have been banned for a sport for improper behaviour, as recently done in gymnastics last week, they named and shamed lots of coaches being banned. You should know that. It may not be the, the level of a criminal action for indecent assault or other sexual offences, but it's inappropriate behaviour around children. It's a huge question mark about you. And not only should you be banned from the sport, but people should know about it. This isn't people throwing tomatoes at you. This is actually just saying there's a concern about this individual. You should be careful around them. We need to do that because the alternative is just to hope everything's fine, put the head in the sand. But a child will yeah. suffer abuse because we fail to act as society. Well, Dino, I've, I've learned a lot. You're, you're obviously very passionate and knowledgeable about what you do. And I, I appreciate you, your incredibly thoughtful answers. Maybe uh, you could just let people know where they can find out more of your work and, and how they can support it. Yeah, so um, I'm available on uh, Twitter, which is now called X at the point of this uh, publication. Um, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, my contact details, I'm sure, can be shared. And if anyone's got any questions or queries, then please do ask. And uh, I really appreciate you listening and speaking to me, Stephen. And you know, if I ever get the opportunity again, I'd be really keen to do it because I think it's really important what you were doing. So thank you. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thank you, Dino. Have a lovely evening. You too. Take care. Bye. Take care.